2: Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We have a show for you today, let me tell you. Uh, in this half hour, we will be interviewing Menachem Schmidt, who's with, involved with Chabad on campus. We're going to be talking about anti-Israel sentiment on campus. If you've been seeing the news, if you haven't been seeing the news, there's a lot of that going on this week in lieu of the, uh, uh, the what's happened on October 7th and following. The second half hour of the show, we'll be discussing the portion of Vayera chapter 18 and following some really good Bible story stuff. We've got Jewish music scattered throughout the show. And of course, we'll be concluding cl- with, a. this is an amazing Hasidic story. So we're going to go straight to Rabbi Schmidt. Hey, Menachem, how are you?
3: Thank God, how are you doing?
2: Good, thank God. Okay, so there's lots of stuff been going on all over the country, from UCLA to Cooper Union, and uh, anti. And don't ins- forget
3: University of Pennsylvania
2: and University of Michigan in between. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so from from sea to shining sea and purple mountains majesties, this has all been. Been happening. So you're. Let's just back up a little bit. Let's give some background to who Menachem Schmidt is. So you're involved with an organization called Chabad on Campus. How many American campuses does that serve currently?
3: I, I don't remember. <laughs> right now, I don't remember, but it's uh, over three hundred.
2: Three hundred. Okay. And these are basically, okay, I believe, these are these are universities that have a Jewish population. Otherwise, there would not be Chabad on Campus on those. So what are you hearing from your campus rabbis about this situation?
3: Um, we're hearing all sorts of different things. Um, and, you know, and it's a, it's a fluid situation. Um, it's a fluid situation. So it's, uh, it's, Look, I mean, I think everybody can read, you know, there are, it's not only on campus, but there are, you know, people, Palestinian, Hamas sympathizers, let's call them what they are, Hamas sympathizers, are demonstrating and, um, and threatening and doing all kinds of different things all over, not only on campus, but also in the community, you know, there's going to be um, the scheduled something big is also scheduled in Brooklyn this this Shabbos. That sounds a little that sounds scary, but um, um you know, and the other thing. Look, and the, there's obviously been a coordinated effort to to move the ball forward for these people to advance this um, the, to advance this. Uh, this narrative and, uh, and, and there's quite a few takers, but I think that that's not, uh, you know, that's, that's not new. As far as campus is concerned, um, certain amount of um, professors and these kind of things have been entrenched on campuses, which isn't new, but it's, it's, it's progressed, which means that there are more people now, you know, it's kind of how can a person look at what happened on Shmini Yatsaris in any other way, but thinking of that it was a pogrom that people were killed, murdered, raped, et cetera, et cetera what what other narrative is there instead people are expecting us to apologize for the fact that somebody else did this to us and in order to to put that across there needs to be there needs to be some sort of um there needs to be some sort of concerted effort. You know, at Penn, I'm, which is where I am, University of Pennsylvania, we saw there was a Palestinian conference here, which was very skillfully done in terms of what they put together. Um, and, you know, and I have to say as Penn is an example. You look at places like Michigan that has a, a larger population that's a Muslim population. I wouldn't say you would expect these kind of things. Because nobody expects this type of lawlessness or threatening or these kind of things. But, um, but you, but places like Penn um, did we haven't seen anything like this before. So, you know, that's what we're hearing. We're hearing kind of a boldness that didn't happen. We're having, we're hearing Jewish kids feeling threatened, which hasn't happened. Um, and, uh, um We'll see as, uh, you know, we'll see as time goes along how, what our responses. I mean, Chabad houses in general are responding very as safe havens, places that educate and inspire. There's been a lot of different speakers from various organizations coming to many, many Chabad houses. And we've, we're a whole battery of programming in terms of informing and, and, um, You know, helping to bolster Jewish pride, and also understanding why you know why this stuff is false, plain, plain plain and simple. Um, And also, Jewish kids need to feel safe and need to be able to feel community and need to feel that, regardless of what kind of campus they're on, that they can come to a place where people understand them and understand their affinities and and what we love and what's right, plain and simple. So. I mean that's what Chabad campus is doing. There's going to be um, a huge Zoom program, or it can't be on Zoom because uh, it can be because it can be kidnapped, it can be hijacked on Zoom, but it's on some other media. This this week, I'm not sure if when it's going to be, but Hillel Chabad, Stand with Us, a whole bunch of other, a whole bunch of organizations are doing a national Zoom kind of with some great speakers and to kind of bolster everybody and bring everybody together. And we'll see a little bit more of that. Look, you know, we're, everybody's, I wouldn't say, you know, it's not, this is not something new in history, but on the other hand, um, you know, we were caught off guard with the the magnitude of it and um, it, it deserves a, a response, which has a magnitude, a big magnitude too. And we, look, we've been, Uh, All the guys, all the Chabad houses have been there, been on campus, putting on tefillin, giving Shabbos candles, responding with negativity, with positivity, and also with, uh, like I said, information. That's what I'm hearing.
2: Okay. Our guest today is Rabbi Menachem Schmidt with Chabad on Campus, and we're talking about anti-Israel sentiment on campus. Okay, Menachem Schmidt, this is a question I've asked to uh, many diplomats, many pundits, so back in the fifties and sixties and early seventies, so the PLO, their narrative was: is we have to we have to just like drive out the Israelis and they're, they're all the terrible things. But then after the Munich Olympics, they saw that sentiment was changing against them. So Yasser Arafat and changed the narrative that the Palestinians are the victims. And the media just jumped all over it. And since the early 80s, the Palestinians have been winning the media campaign, the media war, which is then thereby indoctrinated the academics. So if you look at it, there have been like three generations almost of college professors that have bought into – the lie of the Palestinians. So, uh, I'm not exactly sure. The question I can ask is like, so what do we expect? That's a
3: really. That, this is a really Jewish question because it's a statement. Go, go ahead. Yeah, er, yeah. What, right. can, what,
2: what can we expect? And I mean, I've I've heard it for I don't know as long as I'm I'm out here on, and uh, working in the community where I hear that students are saying. Well, if I opened my mouth in class, I would have failed. So I just did uh, spit the stuff back out. I passed and I went on my way. But this guy was really fomenting and, and really rabble rising. So it's been, it's been 40 years of this anti Israel sentiment. So, as Chabad on campus, or generally as Jews, what do you think we can do to combat that media blitz that's been ongoing since the 80s? <laughs> And you have a okay, uh, communication, look, so you know.
3: I actually do. Okay. Um, so, look, I think there's a bunch of things that we can do and a bunch of things we are doing. Number one, Chabad on Campus nationally is affiliated with and working with um, a lot of, you know, uh, many, many, all, all of the pro-Israel organizations utilizing all of them. But don't forget that far as providers feet on the ground that see many, many students, the two behemoths are Chabad and Hillel. I mean, we see the majority, whoever's on campus. And, you know, if Stand With Us wants access to students, it's going to be through one of those two organizations. And we're, we're on campus. You know, we're the ones that are actually on the ground, feet on the ground. So we work with Stan With Us. We work with... Um, Brandeis Project, we work with Lawfare, we work with, um, you know, we work with all kinds of different organizations, ICC, you know, everybody who's working, we're, we're all working cooperatively together and coordinate when, you know, with as much coordination as possible and trying to utilize these resources. This, by the way, is a new thing. This is a thing which, you know, 10 years ago, didn't exist so much with, uh, you know, with, in terms of, you know, the, the kind of coordination, number one. Number two is there are now different types of legal and technical, tactical ways with which these things are being dealt with um, legally. Uh, you know, if a kid, for example, wants to identify themselves as, as a Hamas, Sympathizer. I mean, it's a terrorist organization that can have that can have implications in terms of the, you know, the, in terms of how they're perceived on their resume, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's one thing. Another thing is that a teacher that's teaching sociology at a university is supposed to be speaking about, um, I don't know, you know, the 1900s. And if this person, it's one thing if it's, if he's a Middle East studies professor, but if he's you know, and and then he's supposed to be speaking about something else, and he's and he or she is giving a lecture on why Israel is committing genocide, that's that's a little bit out, a little, a little bit further out of the plantation. Besides the fact that it's intimidation for Jewish students, et cetera. So some of those things now are being. Um, Various organizations are working on on on, on, um, on like I said, tactical and legal uh, methodologies. You know, how long that's one thing. Another thing is that I mean, there's been a lot of research now in terms of what you're talking about, Rabbi Finman, and it's um, uh, it's not it's not a new thing, and it's not a, it's it's not a new thing. I mean, the University of Pennsylvania, when I was here, had um uh, Louis Farrakhan come to speak, by the way, just um, another, you know, whatever. So, I mean, this is this kind of hate speech on a university specifically targeted at Jews is not a new thing, but it's much more pervasive. And um, and, I'm, you know, but, you, you know, one thing you should remember, I think I definitely remember and we're both you know, around the same age is, you know, in sixty seven et cetera when there was a when there was a tremendous um, you know upheaval in terms of uh, radical movements in America, there was an alignment with those with many of those movements with uh with antiSemitism so that 's not a new thing you know Black panthers were not every single one of them but in general there was some antisemitic semitic rhetoric et etc so this isn't uh, this is this this linkage between Hamas and very, very radical progressives is not a new thing. As far as the faculty on campus, um, also, it's, you know, it's um, it's not new. You know, the, the, it's not it's, it's not it's not new. There's a, there's a there's a they have a good narrative, you know, at this point. Uh, one of the things which is lacking, which I hope will be addressed, is that we don't have we don't have a good narrative in other words what I mean by that is like this if you take a normal person and I would suggest anybody who's on this call this is something that you should do Any anybody on the radio I mean and that is like this the, Hamas has a narrative. it's genocide they're trying to they're, they're trying to, and it's, gen, it's it's genocide colonial colonialism and uh, and that's it. And and, they, and they even have a nice catchy song from the river to the sea, right? So it's it's very it can be expressed in two sentences. If you go up to a normal kid on a college campus, not not a person who's been an Emerson fellow or the one or two or four kids on a college campus that are that live as Israel as, as advocates, but just your normal garden variety student that went on Birthright or. Likes Israel, likes falafel, loves Israel, and say, kid, give me five reasons why Israel can exist. Most people will not be able to express that, and that's uh, or or two reasons, you know that that are very you know articulate, shortened to the point, and will answer anything that Hamas says. So to me you know that's a problem that's going to be addressed but it also has to be addressed uniformly you know one of the things with Hamas is that they've been able to get out a uniform um rhetoric and that's and that's very hard to it's very pervasive it's hard to and it's hard to combat so those i mean there's a lot of things that are happening and uh there's a lot of things that are happening but uh I think we'll see. Okay, cool. Okay,
2: so you mentioned before that Chabad houses on campus are providing a safe haven for for Jews. We had, um, I don't know how extensive it was around the rest of the country, but University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, October the 13th, which was the Friday after the 7th, was declared a jihad day. That's what it was called on campus. And I know a Mm -hmm. lot of Jewish kids that didn't go to class. And so a lot of them went home for the day because, you know, I don't want to be sticking around for that. And, of course, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. It was just it was it was it was rhetoric. But they were terrorized. And I've said that if you're terrorized by a terrorist, then a terrorist won. So what does Chabad on campus? What Chabad houses on campus? do to make Jewish students feel secure, make them feel at, at home. So a kid comes into the into, into Chabad house and says, you know, I'm, I'm really um, scared or I'm really uncomfortable, even uncomfortable walking around. I don't like expressing myself in class, etc., etc." et cetera. What is the Chabad house rabbi going to tell him?
3: well first of all it gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of, uh, of of it's a safe place you can express yourself there's other people like you that are here the other look and the other thing is that if there's action that needs to be taken or can't be taken we're here to help we're you know we don't where we most of these things are outsourced by people that are specialists but but um you know we outsource and we are involved in um in, in helping with these things so you know there's there's a belonging, inspiring, having a safe space, and there's also when action needs to be taken with the university or with, um, you know, in some other tactical or even legal legal ways. Then we have we have people that we work with that uh, that can help with these things, you know. And also, don't forget that we are, you know, the people that are demonstrating generally are not not necessarily part of the university. There might be some university faculty. But in most places, at this point, thank God you know we are we're chaplains we have a connection to the university we're you know especially in this thing it's it's not we're not some you know we we have uh, we have the ear of the university and there are many situations where they've where there's uh, where they've had meetings with uh, with the heads of the university together with Hillel or or separately or whatever, where they've made, where, you know, they've made agreements and understandings. Look, look, we're not, we don't need to have um, anti, we don't need to have anti-Muslim rhetoric. We're not interested in promoting those types of things, but we can't have anti-Semitic rhetoric period in it. And, you know, that's, and we can't have situations where people are intimidated, where there's, where there's, uh, you know, and, And those things will have to be more, will be more, I hope. I mean, we're working towards this, making sure that, uh, you know, in this new reality that uh, controls are being put into place.
2: Uh Do you think demonstrations or counter-demonstrations would be effective, Rabbi Menachem Schmidt?
3: Well, first of all, they're they're very popular on both sides. People want to show that... uh, people want to show that they, that they're for something or they're against something. Uh, the Rebbe's position in these things has always been, um, that you can accomplish much more quietly. Uh, you know, and, um, but, uh, listen, it's in these, in this environment, it's very hard to, it's very hard to say, you know, look, um, it's very hard to say. I mean, uh, Hamas is using this uh, using this opportunity to do many, many demonstrations and get people really riled up. And um, we're we're very sure that there's a lot that there's a lot of resources being poured into this. <laughs> it's very intimidating. It's it also shows an outflow of support. And in America, this is uh, you know the, in, in the world, this is one of the ways you. You uh, you them you uh, you 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 support something. I mean, so I, I can't speak to that as a cultural, you know, as a cultural fact. But the fact is that a doing mitzvahs is really a, a very important way of 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 supporting Israel. You know, it's uh, we're all one. We're all one. We're all you know that one of the most powerful videos which went around, which was actually originated my, on our campus on Penn, was Levi Chatskelevich. On Monday afternoon, Monday afternoon, our students came back from their break, and there was a pro-Hamas rally and march down campus. So this is a campus that I don't think we've we've ever we've never seen anything like this before. And Levy is there, putting on tefillin with students. We he's been on. He and Nachama, the the campus rabbi, Rebison, have been on on the campus counseling and helping students do mitzvahs almost every day since. Uh, we had our uh, the, uh, the Palestinian program that they had. I won't they call it a festival. I'm not going to call it a festival, but um, about three weeks ago, so um, or more than that. So it's uh, you know that type of support is very important. The other thing is we can't underestimate our own strengthening our own community at this point veracity of facts, what's real, what's not real, what you believe, what you don't believe, a lot of it comes through people that you know. If you share information that you know with your friends, even though it seems like you're not talking to quote unquote them, it doesn't make any difference. Because the real battlefield is for the people that don't know and or that don't care. So the more you can share information with others with who you have a relationship with in terms of this encouraging to do mitzvahs, encouraging to support Israel, knowing what the facts are, the more, the more you're actually helping, you're, you're helping a lot. And as far as worrying about, you know, what some Middle East professor is teaching in many cases, those people are also preaching to the choir, you know, and if, and, uh, and, and you might, and, and uh, you might be able to have more of an effect on the people that you know, than even that person does, because in a certain sense, once they open their mouth, they show who they are. They they've lost credibility. They've lost credibility also. So we all can do a lot in terms of informing, in terms of strengthening our connection to, to and to Torah and to mitzvahs and doing more mitzvahs and also and supporting Israel in these ways. Do you
2: do you believe this? Is probably... Come to the end of the interview. Do you believe that say Joe average Jew should Get involved with what's going on on campus, or
3: should they leave that for the people on campus? What does that mean? Should you go to campus and, so you and like try go to, to mission campus
2: and try and help no. and
3: do and this? No, listen, everybody. First of all, this isn't a, this isn't going to be just a campus thing. You know, it's it's going it's all over, and, and you know, so you can help in other ways. No, you don't have to go. What you campus is campus is its own animal. But, uh, you know, like I said, if you get become, first of all, do a mitzvah. Strengthen the Jewish community in any way you can. This is really, really important. And that's, you know, if you, mezuzahs, this week, if you don't light Shabbos candles, light Shabbos candles. Bring more light into the world. Light a candle for Israel. It's really important. Find a lubavitcher or anybody to help you put on tefillin. And, do it. Just do more mitzvahs. We strengthen. We strengthen the Jewish community. This is the way that we're. This is. This is the real strength of the Jewish people. One and two is to know more about um, what the real answers to these things are. To share them with your friends. To share them on social media. Not to get into fights with people that are saying stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in general. There are. They're. They're, they're picking up steam. They have some momentum. They have people that. that that are that they that they've convinced of this information but there are a lot a lot of people that just don't know they'd rather not know about it it's just it's a lot of noise and those people you know if they're your friends they're uh there will be maybe be able to to share information with them and it's a good thing and especially jews
2: Indeed. Okay, so, uh, final question. You mentioned before about a uh, group Zoom for college campuses. Um, would you like to share details with that, that this non-Zoom?
3: Uh, no, I, I, I don't I don't have the details, but I can get it to you when I do know.
2: Okay, very good. That's going to do it. Uh, our guest today has been Rabbi Menachem Schmidt from Chabad on Campus. We've been talking about campus uh, anti-Israel sentiment. And we want to thank you so much for taking some of your time. And next time, we'll talk about, hopefully, a happier subject. Okay, great. And have a great Shabbos. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's a symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for Kosher, and S-U-P for Supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hi, Arshelton, and here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. Coming up next, let's do some music just to change the, uh, the whole tune. So we re- reported that three weeks ago, um Deddy passed away. Deddy was one of those, he was he was a phenom from the 80s and 90s. And just, I guess, maybe fell off the planet as far as recording goes, but was doing work in synagogues and whatnot. So he passed away. So this is a tribute to Deddy. These are a collection of some of his hits. And this is Yaakov Brisky. <laughs>
1: Hosambre colcala Hosambre oh colcala Poi so so ve col si me udo u u o ve cu so udo I'm
2: We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call eight hundred six zero three eighteen thirteen. That's eight hundred six zero three eighteen thirteen, 603 1813 Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel Friedman here, listening to The Jewish shower. This song is very special. The composer and um, person who a performer is named Aaron Markovitz. He is a native not only of Michigan, but a native of Ferndale, Michigan. He's also currently the current music scholar in residence at Temple Israel, which means that he's supposed to do various and sundry music projects for that temple. So he, after October seventh, composed a song called The Song for Israel. This is amazing. I just I, I spoke with Michael Smallush, the Canter over there, and it said he just sat down three days, knocked it off, start to finish, done. Which is, if anybody knows anything about songwriting and uh, arranging and et cetera, et cetera, that is like unbelievable. So, uh, the song again is The Song of Israel. Let's listen. Mm-hmm.
4: Right to right or wrong. If you're gunning down our children in the land that we belong in response to senseless violence, we pray to God to break the silence. Hear the headlines, we got a right to right or wrong. I ask, does it make any sense? Placing sins upon the heads of innocence An everlasting saga that's been rigging for too long Hear the headlines, we got a right to right or wrong We have a right to take Let Almighty God be the force behind our hands as we rise as one together yes. From our deepest depths we'll yell Yes, Lodun's foot, let your biggest cry We have the right to see a day But you must answer for each child that you slay you think that it is justified But you'll see it's all in vain have a right, we have a right to see a day We have a right to take a stand And let Almighty God be the force behind our hands As we rise as one together From our deepest depths we'll yell would let Vinusche vaschama him zu Israel we go aloh Barchet midinat Yisrael Rachits mifot geulotei nu agena lecha bevrach hasdecha Uvros alecha Sukach shlomcha Ah, 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 ah Now here I sit with instrument and pen in hand Writing a song that I never wish to sing again Let it never be forgotten when there's peace throughout this land Pray to God never seen this song again.
3: We have a
4: right take a say.
2: Why go to a hospital and get healthy? Hi, Rachel here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, final song I will be playing for this hour, except for the closer. This is Ofir Cohen, and the song is called, it's a really pretty song. It's called Ayal HaGolan, which means like m- m- goats or, or uh, rams of the Golan Heights and refers really to the, like, to the idea of forces. So let's listen.
1: בקרוב תזרח השמש, נדע ימים יפים מאלה, הלב נלחם בדאגות כולם יחזרו הביתה, נחכה להם למטה, הלוואי נדע פסורות טובות כי עם הנצח לרולם לא מפחד, אפילו למה באחד אף אחד פה לא בודד שהסרפו המלחמות עם ישראל אם לא <אם> נשכח תמיד Loti ti polka etruhenu mi savi barzel shel haravot veyonat ifros knafaim atikva batshnut al paim od netzel hashir ba harachovot kira manetzach lo mefaped afilu k'shekash eliro oh 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 kulam beyachad she is a
0: things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Herschel
2: Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. This week's portion, which is read in the synagogue, synagogues, uh, universally around the world, is the portion of Vayera. It can be found in the book of Genesis, chapter 18 and 4 following so in this section this is the we have the uh, the aftermath Abraham had his bris last week and then there's the birth of isaac and the binding of isaac the um those are those are like the main stories in the middle of all this there's a uh, small story of the expelling of ishmael as you may recall last week, Sarah couldn't have any kids. So she tells Avraham, Listen, I can't have any kids, but if you'll take, hey, you'll get married to this uh, slave girl that I have, Hagar, and then I'll raise the kid. And it'll be like, you know, I'm supporting a child. And supporting a child is the same thing like having a child. So that'll be fine. So he has a kid, and the kid's named Yishmael, which is very interesting that he named him Yishmael and not Shmael. Because Shmal means he listened to God. Yishmael means he will listen to God, which means he's not listening to God right now, but he will. So in this week's portion, so Sarah tells Avraham, get rid of the kid. Get out. Gone. Don't want him around anymore. Because, very interesting thing, I don't want him saying that... The land of Israel belongs to him. God promised in last week's portion that to Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, the first Jew, the person who is counted as the first Jew, who is also the progenitor of the Arab people as well, that his children... Would be the ones who would possess the land of Israel, and it's delineated. Some of the borders are, are given in last week's portion. Most of them are actually given in chapter twenty-five in the book of Exodus, from the sea to from sea to sea. Never mind, sea to river. From the sea to the Arabian Sea. So that takes care of Jordan, et cetera, et cetera, and from the river, meaning like the uh, the the Reed Sea, the river, the Red Sea, whatever it is, all the way up to the Euphrates River in Turkey. So it's a big chunk of change, which is, technically speaking, Israel. Now, if you look at the Bible, Israel, the Jews never conquered all that land. God said, you're going to conquer it as you need it, because just maintaining infrastructure is going to be too difficult. But as your population grows and you'll engage in expansion, so this is the land that I'm promising to you. And indeed, people have asked me, what's going to be at the end of days? You have every Jew who's ever born, ever will be born, is going to be living in Israel. How's that possible? It's a country the size of New Jersey. It's not going to be the size of New Jersey anymore. It's going to spread a lot because it's going to need to accommodate and will achieve the biblical borders. In answer to Rabbi Schmidt's question, give two reasons. Why the Jew why Israel should exist. One of them is, is because it's been biblically promised. And Jews have it's been their land for four thousand years. There have been interruptions, yes. Um, for two hundred and ten years, Jews did not live there because they were exiled into Egypt and it was inhabited by Canaanites. But then, the, under Joshua, the Canaanites were driven out, and there they did a, a pretty decent job—not good enough as far as uh, ramifications go—but and they and they stayed there for some eight hundred years. I think that's enough time to establish roots—eight hundred years—until Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered them and said, "I'm shipping you guys out." With the idea being of destroying nationalistic pride, nationalism, and not to realize if I have the Jews near me, then I get the benefit of their Jewish intellect and the Jewish, uh, the Jewish brotherhood that exists, and uh, the the commerce and etc. The ingenuity. So he said, I want these people next to me, and that lasted for seventy years. And then the Jews went back, and there the Jews stayed. Well, the temple lasted 420 years, but the Jews stayed another 180 years after that. So it's another 570 years that the Jews are again in Israel. And it was only because the Romans came and said, you know what? We're getting rid of all the Jews. It's too much. It's not cost effective. We can't maintain uh, armies over here. These Jews keep on rebelling. It's like, you know, we're just going to kick them all out and... We'll, we'll we'll call the place Palestine after the Philistines that no longer exist that used to live here, and we'll put some I don't know some Samaritans over here. The Samaritans were actually because from Babylonian time, and the other groups that kind of like wandered in. Some Arabs took over, you know. So and then, but Jews have always from the time. That they were exiled have always included in their prayers Lashanah Habav Yerushalayim. Next year we'll be in Israel, in Jerusalem, fervently praying for our return to the Holy Land. And indeed, okay, 1948. Uh, it's actually started in uh, with the first Chalutzim. They were actually prior to the first pioneers in the seventh late 1700s. You had a small migration from Europe. You always you had Jews that were coming from from Iraq. And uh, making up the Sephardic community, the Mizrahi community. And there was a small number of Jews that lived there. They had Israel had no gross national product. There was no no economy whatsoever. It was totally dependent on people helping. And then there was waves with the pogroms in the 1880s. So people decided that they're going to go to... Israel and then by the 19 by the, the under the Ottomans until 1918 and then the Balfour Declaration and then the white papers and the the Brits made a whole big mess of things and then 1948 and the establishment of the Jewish of uh, the state of Israel and Israel has since thrived and has become the homeland of the Jewish people because every people, Needs a homeland. This is one of the things that I've been been counseling people. So people come to me. They say they say they have survivors' guilt. I said, but you weren't you weren't in in southern Gaza when southern Israel and this thing. No, no, no. Is how come I have it easy over here? I'm living in America, and all I have to worry about is paying my bills. And these are people that are getting killed. So it says that the Almighty decreed. This person, the Gemara says, Echad la Barbaria, Echad la Britannia. This person goes to the Barbary Coast. This person goes off to Britain. These were places that existed in uh, uh, 1,500 years ago. And the Jews are spread out around the, the world in order that if there's a problem with one place, Jews from another place will be able to help because there is this interconnected neighborhood among Jews there's a, Somebody wrote a book called Six Degrees of Separation and said that everybody in the world they could figure out, you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows that person and that person that knows you, okay? In Judaism, there's no six degrees of separation. It's one, maybe two degrees of separation. There is that fraternity, that fraternal order that exists where Jews feel a need such that this last week, there was a, an IDF, Friends of the IDF dinner. They raised uh, $2.5 million in one evening. So Jews feel, they feel this is something that, that you know, we, we have to take care of our brethren. And in, uh, a couple of years ago when it was Ukraine and we have to help the Jews in Ukraine, we help the Jews in Ukraine. And this is the way it always has has been and always will be. And those are your two reasons. And it all goes back to Abraham. Speaking of going back, we have to take a quick commercial break, and we have an unbelievable Hasidic story. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, Arshel Finman here. You're listening to The Jewish Shower. Time is short, so I'm just going to get to this quick. You want to get in touch with me? RabbiFineman.com. Look at all the things that are over there. I want to get right to the story. So, um, there was a wealthy businessman who lived during the times of the Tzemach the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. You're talking from the 18 late 1830s to the 1860s is when he was Rebbe. And so this businessman came to Lubavitch. He hired a coach and he had a private audience with the Rebbe. And he said, Who was the coachman who brought you? Who's the wagon driver, the Balagullah? So he told him his name, Yermia, Jeremiah. So he said, Next time you come, make sure to bring Jeremiah. So he's like, Okay. So he would come like two, three times a year to Lubavitch. But because he was so curious, so like a month went by, and he told Jeremiah, listen, I'm going to Lubavitch for a couple of days. I will hire you. I will pay for you to stay in Lubavitch, and I'll pay for you to drive back. You know, it's like you know keeping the, keeping the meter running and paying. It was a nice sum, a chunk of change this guy was going to make. And most of the time, he's just going to be sitting on his duff. So he came, and he told Lubavitch Rebbe that the Tzammach Tzedek I came, as you did, I fulfilled your request, and Jeremiah, the wagon driver, Yirmi the Balagala, is the one who brought me. So he said, terrific. Tell him I would like to uh, have him come for a private audience. It was like very unusual. Usually the rabbi didn't request people. People requested to have an audience with him. Not that he requested that. So he went and told this, this Jeremiah that uh, the Rebbe would like to see you, and he said, "I don't know what a Rebbe is. I don't have, and eh, I'm not going." So the <laughs> so this wealthy merchant realized that there's something doing over here. This is not something unusual. So he turned to Jeremiah and said, "Well, if that's the case, then you have no reason to be here. You can go home. I'll pay you for the trip here, and but that's it." Because I can get a wagon driver home, so have a nice day. So he realized that he's going to lose a lot of money. So rather than being philosophical, he was pragmatic and said, "Okay, I'll meet the rabbi." So he came in. He met the rabbi, and the rabbi, said, smiled at him, and they had a nice conversation, a decent conversation. And he asked him, um, "You're you're a wagon driver. Do you any do anything special in a wagon as a wagon driver?" So he said, not really, he's just a simple person, but he said, you know, sometimes I have to go into backwater towns, and these are places where you'll have one or two Jews. And so I decided that these people, they need a moil. they need somebody who can circumcise their babies. Because it can be weeks until somebody comes into town, these backwater places. And so like this, I'm traveling there all the time. I always travel with, don't, pardon me, where does a mile keep his, his tools? In his bris kit. Yes. Okay. For people to know that the word <laughs> for circumcision is bris. And anyway, he keeps it in the bris kit. Yes. Anyway. So I always travel with my tools. So he said, did anything happen unusual recently? He says, I tell you the truth. Yeah. It was kind of strange. Says usually I just gotta make up a thing. I says I was driving and I came. I heard I heard weeping, and I stopped the wagon, and I get out and I walk towards this hovel. It's supported by trees around it. They built the house so that the trees would make sure that the house didn't fall down. And I walk in. And there's a guy, he's on a bed, he's like moaning. He's like, he looks more not in this world than in this world. And there's a woman crying. And there's a little baby who's swaddled in rags. So I said, well, madam, what's the matter? So she says, I had a son. And today's the eighth day. Today's the day of the bris. And my, my husband is too sick to travel to town to go get a mile to go get somebody to circumcise the baby. So he said, that's fine. I'm a male. I could do it. And I ran right away and I went to the to the wagon. I'm not going to make the same joke twice. He got his, his knife and et cetera, all the stuff, the sterilizing tools. And he set himself up and he said, really, wait, somebody's supposed to hold the baby. Now it's really hard to do a bris if the baby's on your lap. So he couldn't be the one to hold the baby. The mother is not supposed to be really holding the baby. It's supposed to be a man. And the father was too sick to even get out of bed. So he went back to the crossroad and he's looking, waiting, you know, what's, what's, you know, maybe somebody will pass by. He's standing there for an hour, nothing. This is like, we're talking, you know, forests in, in Ukraine someplace. And suddenly A guy starts walking to him. He's got a he's got a he's got a big beard, and he's got sparkly eyes. And the guy says to the wagon driver, says, "Hey, we need you to hold the baby." The guy keeps on walking, so this guy's not taking no for an answer. He's a big burly wagon driver, so he steps in front of the guy, and says, "We need you now." So he says, "The guy gave me a push like I wasn't even there, sent me sprawling." So I said absolutely not. You're not getting away. I said, listen, you'll come for three minutes. That's all the long that it takes to hold the baby. And then you can keep going wherever you got to go. So he said, finally, he agreed. So he came in, sat him down, put the baby on his list, made the bris. I told him, okay, you can go. Finally, he says to me, what are you talking about? We have to, we have to have a meal. Every bris has to have a meal. So I'm thinking, okay, now the guy's a uh, panhandler. Okay, he wants to get a meal out of the deal. He says, okay. So I thought to myself, what do we have? This lady's got nothing. So he said, I have some bread. I have some cheese. You know, I have some water in my car. So he went back to the wagon. The woman spread out a tablecloth. And the old man said, it's not right that the father of the son shouldn't be attending his own father's, his own celebration. So I look at the guy and I say, isn't it? Can't you see? So he says, what's the big deal? He goes over to the guy. He, he, he rolls him out of bed, stands him up. The guy walks over to the table like nothing happened, like he's well, like nobody's business, like he never was sick. We sat down, we sang songs, we ate the food, and the guy left. And he walked out the door. And I walked out after him, nowhere to be found. So the Samach said, I want you to come to a festive meal that I'm having tomorrow which festive meals in the middle of the week, that's like, never, no. Festive meals are for holidays, for Shabbos. So the guy came. says, after he left, so one of the sons asked his father, what gives? Why the festive meal in the middle of the week for a wagon driver? And he said, somebody who sat down and ate from the same place as plate as our patriarch Abraham, I wanted to have a meal with him too. That's going to do it. We hope you had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care.
1: יש פוקר קרע לא מוסבר, איך שרים כשלב נשבר, אני פה מול החדשות, לא מעכל את
0: הדמעות, אם אנחנו נבחר